Is the democratic narrative surrounding January 6th crumbling? The sharing of biased and false news has become all too common on social media. And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. It's fake, phony, fake. Actually, I was shocked this morning. I got up and did something I don't normally do, and it's I read the Washington Post. And as I was looking at the analysis in the Washington Post, they literally claimed that their own narratives had been a failure. Of course, there is a reason that we and other news organizations have generally stopped giving an unfiltered live platform to remarks by former President Trump. It's interesting for the narrative because the narrative is these are safe, effective treatments, long-term good care. And if that were the case, then nobody would be afraid of an extended period of time for malpractice. If you go back really not, not that long ago, as I say, we kind of, we owned the news. We were the gatekeepers and we very much owned the facts as well. If it said it in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, then that was a fact. Nowadays, people can go to all sorts of different sources for the news and they're much more questioning about what we're saying. I'm Jeffrey K. Lyons and it's Tuesday, February the 13th, 2024, and this is Narrative Wars. Today, we take an in-depth view into the Supreme Court case of Trump versus Anderson. This is the case where the Supreme Court of Colorado, in a 5-4 to four decision, voted to kick Trump off the Colorado presidential primary ballot. We also focus on the fake bill from the United States Senate, which pretended to protect the U.S. southern border. You wouldn't believe how it was defeated. And finally, there's more good news for conservatives. The deep state is beginning to crumble in Washington, D.C., as congressional representatives and senators are being exposed and they will soon be losing their seats. All of this and much more on today's episode of Narrative Wars. I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey K. Lyons, and you don't want to miss this. We the people are sick and tired. Let's peel back the curtain of confusion to shed light upon the mainstream media madness. And now, Narrative Wars with your host, Jeffrey K. Lyons. We the people are sick and tired So tired Ladies and gentlemen, as the dust settles on the excitement of this week's Super Bowl, we are back in the game fighting for the soul of America, fighting for the narrative. And we are peeling back the curtain of confusion and exposing the lies of the mainstream media. Last week, we heard the successful and peaceful Take Our Border Back Convoy protest, which was held in Quemado, Texas. And this week, we begin our program with a Colorado Supreme Court case, which is being contested in the United States Supreme Court. According to C-SPAN, this case began with a group of Colorado voters from both parties uh, who filed a lawsuit uh, seeking to keep Trump off the presidential 
primary ballot in the state of Colorado. They argue that he engaged in insurrection on the Capitol and therefore was not qualified to be president under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. The Supreme Court is expected to rule quickly on this case because Colorado's upcoming primary election is scheduled for March the 5th. 2024. Well, a couple other things that we want to touch on before we listen to this clip. Again, the case is Trump versus Anderson. That's the case which is before the Supreme Court of the United States, and it certainly will affect the election uh, which is coming up for the President of the United States. Few points I wanted to touch on before we listen to this cut. Again, the case is Trump versus Anderson, which is before the Supreme Court. And in the following exchange, you're going to hear first Justice Samuel Alito of the Supreme Court, and he's speaking with Jonathan Mitchell, who is the attorney in favor or the attorney who is representing President Trump. And so let's take a listen to this. And this is cut number 1A. It's about a minute 59. Uh, it is on C-SPAN. Links are in the show notes. Let's listen to this. Cut number 1A. Would it not permit, uh, would it not lead to the possibility that other states would say, using their choice of law rules and their rules on uh, on uh, collateral estoppel, that there's non-mutual collateral estoppel against former President Trump. And so the decision of the Colorado Supreme Court could effectively decide this question for many other states, perhaps all other states. Could it not lead to that consequence? I don't think so, because Colorado law does not recognize non-mutual collateral estoppel. And I believe the preclusive effect of the decision would be determined by Colorado law rather than the law of another state. But I think your question, Justice Alito, gives rise to an even greater concern. Because if this decision does not have preclusive effect in other lawsuits, it opens the possibility that a different factual record could be developed in some of the litigation that occurs in other states. And different factual findings could be entered by state trial court judges. They might conclude, that, as a matter of fact, that President Trump did not have any intent to engage in incitement or make some other finding that differs from what this trial court judge found. Yeah, exactly. So this, this in this decision, the, the trial court in Colorado thought that it was uh, proper to admit the January 6th report. And it also admitted the testimony of an expert mm -hmm. who testified about the meaning of certain words and phrases to people who communicate with and among extremists, right? Uh, another another state court could reach an opposite conclusion on both of those questions. Certainly. Other states could conclude that the January 6th report is an admissible hearsay. They might also conclude that statements within the January 6th report were hearsay, even if the report itself is not. And they could certainly reach a different conclusion with respect to the expert testimony of Professor Simi. Perhaps in another state we would have time to produce our own sociology expert who would contradict Professor yeah. Simi. So, yes, this was a bit of a long soundbite. It was a minute 59 seconds, but I thought it was absolutely fascinating the full length of the conversation with various judges and various lawyers uh, representing their clients is over two hours. Links are in the show notes if you want to check that out. But there are some very important points here, uh, and I think you can 
catch the uh, overall arching idea behind this brief conversation between uh, Justice Alito and uh, the attorney Jonathan Mitchell representing President Trump. The conversation, of course, it was highly technical, and uh, it is the Supreme Court. You'd expect that. And so it mentions this term collateral estoppel, which just deals with the facts. How will the facts of this particular case uh, be considered in other courts across the country? Will the facts be accepted for face value? Will they be accepted automatically or will they not be accepted? It's not clear. And that's why we have a Supreme Court of the United States. Now, Justice Alito is profoundly aware of the weight of this particular case and pending cases that are similar to it across America. Indeed, the ruling on this case will determine if Trump will or will not be allowed to be on the ballot in about half of the states across America. So keep in mind, there are many cases right now. Uh, there's Colorado, there's Maine, but there's a number of other cases across the country uh, that are waiting uh, for this ruling from the Supreme Court in order to move forward and either keep Trump on the ballot or kick Trump off of the ballot. So this has profound impact of all the cases going on right now in the United States, if, if you're tracking the presidential election of 2024, this is the one uh, to keep your eye on. Now, surprisingly, very little of the proceeding mentioned uh, January 6, 2021, or the events that took place on that day. Surprisingly, very little of the actual January 6 events are even being discussed in in this uh, conversation. Over the entire two hours, uh, very little of it is mentioned. The bulk of the arguments uh, that are being discussed, they have to do with Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. And this is what happens at the Supreme Court level. They discuss constitutional issues. Uh, how these issues should be applied, what part of the government has the authority to even act upon uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, which mentions this term, insurrection. So it's very important that uh, we dig into this. We're going to dig a little further, and uh, we're going to take a listen to another cut here. Now, in this following cut, we're going to listen to Justin Justice Kagan, and she is also, of course, a justice on the Supreme Court of the United States. There's nine justices. Now, Kagan is making the argument that Colorado is making a decision that will affect a national election. So she's going a little farther uh, than uh, Justice Samuel Alito did. And she's just saying it straight up. I think it's going to affect this national election. And she suggests that Colorado should not be making this decision for the rest of the nation. Indeed, she's correct because the remedy for insurrection in Article 14, Section 3 of the Constitution, it states the following. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each House, remove such disability. So, in other words, the Constitution is very clear. If there is an insurrection which takes place, and they, in fact, interestingly enough, the judges didn't even define what an insurrection was in their two-hour-long conversation. 
But in the case that an insurrection does take place, then it's Congress that has the sole authority to act to, quote, remove the disability or remove the problem or issue. It is Congress that has that power, and they must do it by two-thirds vote, both in the United States House of Representatives and in the U.S. Senate. So this is a huge hurdle to overcome, and Kagan is saying, we got a problem here. This is looking like a congressional issue, a federal issue, and I don't think that the state of Colorado has the authority uh, to do what they're trying to do in this uh, ruling that they've made at the Supreme Court of the state of Colorado. Let's listen to cut number 1B. Uh, this is a bit shorter because we're just going to hear Justice Kagan. It's 38 seconds, but she's uh, reaching this issue. Cut number 1B. In other words, you know, this question of whether a former president is disqualified for insurrection uh, to be president again is, you know, just say it. It sounds awfully national to me. Um, so whatever means there are to enforce it would suggest that they have to be federal national means. Why does, uh, you know, if you weren't from Colorado and you were from Wisconsin or you were from Michigan, and it really, you know, what the Michigan Secretary of State did is going to make the difference between, you know, whether candidate A is elected or candidate B is elected. I mean, that seems quite extraordinary, doesn't it? And what really seems quite extraordinary is that I'm agreeing with Justice Kagan. It seems that she is reading clearly the Constitution in this case. Again, Trump versus Anderson uh, is being appealed and uh, the appeal is of a prior Colorado Supreme Court case, which kicked Trump off the ballot. And according to this article by Lawfare, this is February 8, 2024. The links are in the show notes. The whole two hours of conversation back and forth between the justices and the various lawyers representing the two different sides in this case. The arguments focused on two questions primarily. Number one, does Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, does it even apply to Trump and the presidency? And number two, do states have the power to enforce it without congressional action, especially against a presidential candidate? The question about whether the president is an officer of the United States or, as Justice Kagan put it, uh, to the delight of the packed courtroom, the officer stuff got a fair bit of time. The question of whether Section 3 requires congressional action dominated the day. And this is, again, from the article, Lawfare, February 8, 2024. By the end of the session, two things were clear. Trump would not be removed from the Colorado ballot, and the justices would, perhaps in different ways, focus on the necessity of congressional action. Well, I have a couple final comments to make, and these are my uh, observations here. It's worth it to take a look, to take a look at the minority comments uh, from the Colorado Supreme Court. Remember, it was only a five to four vote 
Very close. You can't get any closer. Five to four in favor of throwing Trump off the ballot, off the presidential primary ballot in the state of Colorado. So I was curious, what did any of the minority justices say, the, 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 that group of four, did they post any comments? And yeah, we had a winner winner here. Justice Carlos Samor, uh, Colorado Supreme Court, quote, absent adequate due process, it is improper for our state to bar him, meaning Trump, from holding public office. More broadly, I'm disturbed about the potential chaos wrought by an imprudent, unconstitutional, and standardless system in which each state gets to adjudicate Section 3 disqualification cases on an ad hoc basis. Surely this enlargement of state power is antithetical to the framers' intent, unquote. And you can see the similarities here of what uh, Justice Alito and Justice um, Kagan were saying at the Supreme Court level, how these thoughts by Justice Carlos Samor were overlapping. Secondly, I believe, and these are my thoughts, I believe that this case is going to rule in favor of President Trump. It's going to be dismissed by overruling the Colorado case, and, and uh, Trump will not be struck from the presidential primary ballot uh, across the United States, and including Colorado. Uh, the case may come down to eight to one in favor of Trump or seven to two. Uh, Justice Jackson's comments uh, seem to be open to agreement with the Colorado Supreme Court. So we're going to see how this turns out. But again, they're going to have to rule this rather quickly uh, or rule on this rather quickly because the primary in the state of Colorado is uh, coming right up and that's March the 5th in 2024. So they need to rule rather quickly within the next few weeks. My final thoughts are, at the end of the day, each justice on the Supreme Court, they're going to opine uh, how to rule on their own reading of the Constitution and how it applies to this case. Uh, and this is what Supreme Court justices do. For the more liberal justices of the court that understand that this would lead to the United States becoming a banana republic, they will seek a way to dismiss the Colorado case, which is not based on the insurrection narrative, but rather a reading of the Constitution which says that both houses of Congress must decide how to treat an insurrection and do it with two-thirds vote in the House and the Senate. The Senate's $118 billion border deal officially crashed and burned Wednesday. Yeah, goodbye. Goodbye, fake, fake border bill. Uh, almost 24 hours after minority leader Mitch McConnell told reporters the supplemental spending package uh, had no real chance of becoming law, the measure came up 11 votes short of clearing the Senate's 60-vote filibuster. Uh, Democrats uh, Bob Menendez of New Jersey, Elizabeth Warren, Ed Markey of Massachusetts, Alex Padilla of California, they all joined 44 Republicans in voting against advancing the bill. Now, this is 
quite interesting because there were 45 Democrats that voted in favor of this ridiculous bill. And uh, along with those uh, Democrats were GOP negotiator James Lankford and his fellow Republican Susan Collins of Maine. And yes, the archetypical uh, rhino Senator Mitt Romney of Utah and also Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. Let's take a listen to this piece. Uh, this is New York Post, February 8, uh, regarding this uh, $118 billion, uh, border bill fiasco, which went down in flames in the United States Senate. This is cut number two. A bipartisan deal to address border security went up in flames in the Senate Wednesday. For months, this had been widely seen as critical towards unlocking Republican support for additional aid to war-torn Ukraine. The Pentagon has recently said that funding has effectively run dry to send additional weaponry to Ukraine as it fends off Russian aggressors. Three senators basically spent around four months ironing out the border security provisions in this package. So there was a vote. The vote taken was 49 to 50 to proceed with this bill, and it was defeated. You need at least 60 votes in order to uh, overcome what they call the filibuster threshold. It's also called the cloture rule. But without 60 votes, uh, the bill is dead. It doesn't come up for final vote. Now, the measure was advanced by uh, votes of Republican senators. Some of these we've already mentioned. But uh, again, Susan Collins of Maine, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, James Langford, Oklahoma, Mitt Romney of Utah, and most interesting is that Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell cast the 41st vote, killing the bill. So he did not vote in favor of this piece of legislation, which he had been pushing for for months. You know, he didn't want to look bad, so he killed, basically, the bill that he had supported for three months. Well, let's talk about a few of those senators that worked on this bill. There were three, James Langford from Oklahoma, Chris Murphy, Democrat uh, from Connecticut, and Kirsten Cinema of Arizona. She's an independent. Langford from Oklahoma, well, he was elected in 2022, so unfortunately, he's going to not come up for re-election until 2028. But he needs to be primaried out. We need to get rid of him. I don't care if he's a Republican. This person uh, thought that it was a great idea to vote for a bill that would allow 1.8 million uh, illegals to come into our country without question. Just come in uh, every year and uh, we are just going to uh, do nothing uh, to process them. Okay, so James Langford, uh, he's got to go. Kristen Cinema, the independent from Arizona, well, she's running against Carrie Lake, and we've talked about this in former episodes. This is all happening. All this uh, excitement is happening in Arizona. Cinema was a Democrat, and she switched to independent in December of 2022. According to the New York Times, quote, Senator Kristen Cinema is behind schedule in making a decision about whether to seek re-election in Arizona. 
She's also running out of time. That was from a New York Times article, uh, January 31st, 2024. So Senator Cinema, uh, who left the Democrat Party just over a year ago to become an independent, she's considering whether to run for second term, uh, her aides have said, but uh, new campaign finance reports are showing that she's lagging well behind the plan that she and her team had discussed last spring. So it looks like her funds are uh, drying up. Uh, she may not have a chance. And so that puts Carrie Lake in a very good light. And I hope all the best for Carrie Lake, uh, Republican from the state of Arizona to become the next senator to represent that state. Now, a couple of comments here. There's a pattern which is breaking in Congress. And I think it's very important to underscore this. Uh, for the entire Biden administration, uh, there has been this pattern. And there's so this is how they've been writing legislation. There's been a committee of Democrats and rhino Republicans uh, that uh, meet together and they work on a Senate bill uh, with a packages that have a few concessions for the Republicans with major gains for the Democrats. So they can market it to the Republicans saying, hey, we're going to give you these uh, crumbs. And then, of course, they can also market it to uh, the uh, Democrats and to their uh, Democrat constituents and saying, well, we gave the Republicans a few crumbs, but look at these huge gains we got out on this bill. So uh, this was a fake win-win for both sides. It was a lose-lose for the Republicans. And this is the way they've been writing legislation in the past. Now, this fake border bill, and I have to say it's fake. I keep underscoring that. We don't need it. We don't need a border bill. All the laws we need to enforce uh, the border security, the national security on the southern border of the United States, they're already in place. Trump did a fine job with that. Uh, in fact, Obama did a much better job. I can't believe I'm saying that. Far better job than Biden. Uh, so we don't need a new bill. We just need to follow the uh, laws that are currently in place. So the fake border bill, it was a dead fish. Uh, and so no new laws there are needed to pass this bill. And so we talked about some of the crumbs that were being offered uh, to the Republicans in order to pass this bill. Well, a number of Republicans, uh, especially in the Senate, wanted to send more money to Ukraine. So that was the carrot on the stick. But... Uh, at the other end of the stick was, like I said, there was a, a, a rather stinky dead fish. Uh, this was a bad bill. The Dems were effectively saying, uh, we're not going to send additional aid to Israel unless you fund our endless war in Ukraine and you pass a border bill, which will legally admit 1.8 million illegal immigrants into the United States each year. That is a bad deal. Deal with the devil. Fortunately, the Dems overplayed their hand. Uh, they didn't understand that the Republicans, both in the Senate and the House, were prepared to say hell no to this poison pill bill. And uh, so it went down in flames. Mitch McConnell is not looking good voting against his own uh, bill, which he supported for three months as they were crafting this uh, horrific piece of legislation. So the whole point here is that the pattern is being broken and uh, things are changing. Uh, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say Republicans overall are growing a backbone, 
But I do think that alternative media is making a difference. They're hearing those phone calls from their constituents. They're listening to their constituents' voices. That Americans, both Republican, Democrat, Independent, they're all concerned about the immigration issue. Ladies and gentlemen, if you found value in this program, please share it with one or two like-minded friends. We rely on listeners like you to keep this program in production. You can also join us on social media on Getter and True Social by searching at Jeffrey K. Lyons. I look forward to reading your comments and hearing your thoughts, which are important. Coming up next, the deep state uniparty is crumbling. The Uniparty in Washington, D.C. is just the visible manifestation of the deep state that is working to undermine our faith, family, and freedom, explains journalist Alex Newman of In Focus with Allison Steinberg of One American News Network. We're going to take a listen to this piece, this next piece from Liberty Sentinel. This is October the 2nd. 2023 and pay particular attention to the reference to Council on Foreign Relations, the Bohemian Club, and the Skull and Bones Club. Let's listen to this. This is cut number three. CEO of Liberty Sentinel Media, Alex Newman, joins us now to weigh in. Alex, thanks for being back with us. It's great to have you. Great to be here. Thank you, Allison. Of course. So, Alex, I actually just received your book in the mail uh, on this exact subject entitled Deep State, the Invisible Government Behind the Scenes, which I'm really looking forward to reading and highly suggest everyone go check it out. However, I went onto your website, Liberty Sentinel, and it just so happens you actually recently wrote an article on the deep state, which I found very intriguing. Uh, Alex, the article you, uh, you wrote about highlights what we've been talking about previously on the program for so long, and that is the fact that this left-right paradigm is nothing more than a tool used by the deep state behind the deep state and what I like to refer to as the Luciferian global elites. Alex, can you please explain to us uh, how this construct helps the true power brokers accomplish their agenda and explain for us what exactly that agenda is? Well, thank you, Allison. And I'm, I'm so glad you brought up this example. It's a perfect encapsulation of what we're dealing with. People that we're told are our conservative leaders, our conservative journalists, are actually, when they think nobody's paying attention, hobnobbing with the leftist leaders who were, are supposed to be our enemies. And this is a really perfect example of that. In fact, Fox News, uh, by and large, you know, every once in a while they invite me on and things, but by and large, they're, they're controlled opposition. And what you see is the leftist, Hillary Clinton's family, for example, Bill Clinton, Chelsea Clinton, they are members of an organization called the Council on Foreign Relations. Well, so are a lot of the Murdochs, right? The, including the, the Murdoch sons who now run Fox News. So are a lot of the so-called journalists at Fox News. In fact, News Corporation, which owns Fox News for a long time, was a corporate member of the Council on Foreign Relations. And a lot of their leading so-called journalists and opinion people are also members. And so you have top Republicans, people like Dick Cheney, top Democrats, uh, all joining together in these groups. And there are many of them. Uh, I break down quite a few of them in my book. The CFR is one that's kind of above ground. They publish a membership list and things like that. But then there are others like the, the Bohemian Club out in California where Kevin McCarthy just got spotted. There's uh, the Skull and Bones Club over at Yale University where the Bushes and the Carries like to congregate. So we have, uh, I think what's happening here is an effort to 
control the narrative, divide Americans. They have a fake puppet right and a fake puppet left that are ultimately all leading us toward this one world agenda that for decades they've been in public calling the new world order. Lately, they've started calling it the Great Reset. It's all the same thing. You give up your freedom. You give up your money. You give up your country and they will take care of us. That piece was aired on One American News Network, links in the show notes. Now, that was aired back October of 2023, but it's still very, very relevant to everything we see because the same actors are still in Congress. They're still in the Senate, the House. They are still leaders of the alphabet uh, agencies in the United States government. Now, the good news is that the unit party is both being exposed and it is crumbling. A Senator Mitch McConnell, who we talked about earlier, uh, he was defeated uh, in this uh, last uh, ridiculous border bill. And so he's not looking good. But what's important to note here, and I don't want to just continue to repeat what we've covered earlier, but the new news or the bigger news is that uh, Mitch McConnell's uh, leadership is now a bit shaky. And there's talk about replacing Mitch McConnell in the U.S. Senate, which would be fantastic. Look, here's three that are going down. Uh, Mitch McConnell is losing his clout and he's losing his leadership position. I believe he will be challenged in the United States uh, Senate and then, of course, uh, Romney and Cinema on very shaking grounds. And then finally, there's Joe Manchin. We don't even know uh, what is going to happen. Oh, wait a moment. Yeah, we do. Late breaking news. Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia, he's announced that he will not seek re-election in 2024. So there's a pattern here. Notice that Manchin is from a red state, but he's a Democrat and he was always considered to be a moderate. But no, when it came down to big bills uh, that affected the entire nation and were in favor of the uh, uniparty agenda, Joe Manchin always voted in favor of the uniparty. So we know this is a big problem because the lefties are losing it. Once again, Politico, September 14, 2023. Uh, this is an interesting piece. And uh, it was a few months ago, but again, it is still very, very relevant. The piece was titled, You're Screwed. Romney's Exit Threatens a Collapse of the Senate's Middle. So these were the swing voters in the Senate, and they would always swing to the left. And so these were the voters that the Democrats could always count on. Uh, they were some were independent, uh, some were uh, Democrat swing voters, and others were Republicans. So we're again, we're talking about Romney, uh, Manchin, Cinema, and uh, this is quite interesting. I wanted to lift this out of the article here. Quote, should some or all of them leave Congress next year? Remember, this was written in 2023. So should some of all or all of them leave Congress uh, in 2024? It would mark a repeat of the 2014 and 2018 cycles when a drove of red state Democrats were ousted or retired. So I know there's been a lot of focus lately on the United States Congress, uh, the House of Representatives, because now uh, we got rid of rhino uh, swamp creature, 
uh, Speaker McCarthy. He's gone. Kevin McCarthy's gone. But now we've got, uh, well, we've got, perhaps he's a little better, but uh, I've lost a lot of uh, faith in uh, the current uh, Speaker of the House, uh, Mike Johnson. He's not looking a whole lot better than Kevin McCarthy. But he's beginning to grow some backbone by saying uh, he never would support that Senate bill if it had been passed, the Senate fake border bill, which we've been talking about this entire episode. So this is a story that we should focus on while the press and the mainstream media and the majority of voices have been writing and looking at and focusing on the House there is a revolution occurring in the Senate, and there is a very strong possibility that the United States Senate could go back in Republican hands in the coming year, 2024. And now a few closing comments. Ladies and gentlemen, America loves the underdog story. It's a common theme in our movies. For example, movies like Rocky, True Grit, Sergeant York, the decorated World War I hero, or Jackie Robinson, the 1947 Dodgers baseball legend. I could go on and on with other examples, but I think you get the point. Americans love stories of common citizens overcoming impossible obstacles. We just witnessed perhaps the greatest Super Bowl comeback ever played. The Kansas City Chiefs, the team that really didn't have a very spectacular first half of their season, they were the team that was the underdog in the playoffs and throughout the playoffs, and yet they got into the Super Bowl. They were the team that was losing 10-0 to against the favored San Francisco 49ers, and yet the Chiefs kept fighting all the way to overtime and became back-to-back Super Bowl champions. And that is the stuff of legends. Turning to the 2024 presidential election, a lot of people are asking, why is Trump ascending in the polls? Why is he securing unprecedented gains among Black and Latino voters? Well, it's because like the Kansas City Chiefs and like so many other stories that we tell in the United States of America, land of the free, home of the brave, Trump is seen as the underdog story. New Yorkers as a whole hate him. The Biden DOJ makes up novel interpretations of the law to indict him. And we talked about the Supreme Court of the United States hearing a case right now where Colorado wants to kick him off the ballot. The first three years of President Trump's presidency, the mainstream media pounded a false story. They propagated a false narrative of Russian collusion when there was none. Then there's the mugshot, the famous mugshot of President Trump that was taken in corrupt Fulton County, Georgia, by the corrupt district attorney, Fannie Willis. The list goes on and on. And yet Trump's rallies that he holds 
are like rock concerts with thousands in attendance. And Trump is now leading Biden in the national polls. The Democrats made one critical mistake in their run-up to the 2024 presidential election. The Democrats did not understand that America, at its core, roots for the underdog. The Democrats didn't understand that given the choice between a gaslighting, senile career politician who doesn't give a damn about securing the southern border of the United States and a headstrong underdog fighter who has secured the border in the past, a past president who can connect with the blue-collar worker and believes in bringing jobs back to America and who believes in a strong military and not a DEI woke military, a past president who's willing to risk his entire career for the betterment of America, giving the choice between these two presidential candidates. It should be clear why Trump 2024 is the message of the populist movement. Liberty-loving Americans, the underdog President Trump is winning. The mainstream media hate him. The never-Trumpers and rhinos hate him. And, of course, hardline Democrats and deep state actors hate him. And the Department of Justice hates him. The list goes on and on. But that's precisely the point. Again, Trump is the underdog, which the press and the deep state hate and the average hard-working American supports. They support Trump because Americans are beginning to realize that Washington, D.C. has become too big. It's become too arrogant. Washington, D.C. itself and the lifetime uniparty members are the problem, not President Trump. Americans see this disparity and they're willing to support Trump because he represents a shift away from the Big Brother style of globalist agenda governing that is now so prevalent in Washington, D.C., back to a locally-centered, America-first attitude. The Great Reset has been rejected. It's precisely this populist message that is putting Trump at the head of the pack. America needs to get back to fundamental principles— Principles like protecting our borders and principles like not sending our young men and women to fight in endless wars in countries that only a few years ago, the average American didn't even know existed. We're in a battle for the heart and soul of America. Our actions today, including how we vote, will become the history that future generations read about. America shall remain the land of the free and the home of the brave, a place where we can still proclaim liberty throughout the land. And that's a comforting thought. Until next time for Narrative Wars, I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey K. Lyons. We the people are sick and tired. So tired.